0: introduce our Sunday School teacher this morning, Nick. The Bible commands us to outdo one another in showing honor. So I want to introduce, but I also want to honor Nick. So Nick here is a deacon at Trinity. I've had the joy of knowing Nick for six years. And I'm really thankful for his mission. So I want to honor you, Nick, because, brother, I've seen Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I've watched you for years walk in integrity and courage, which we could use more of these days. I've seen you love your family and to love your neighbors, like the time where you took it upon yourself to help your neighbors get back on the feet after the hurricane, showing Christ's love to your neighbors. So, brother, I'm really thankful. I see Christ's likeness in your life, and it's instructing me uh, and what it means to, to love others the way Christ has loved us. So I'm thankful you, brother. And uh, I think it's going to walk
1: us through
2: another theme of the Bible. All right. Thanks, brother. Well, uh, praise God for all of that. It's definitely not on my own accord. So, good morning, church. So, I want to start today by giving you a word. I want you to think about the first thing that comes to mind when I say this word. Ready? Church. So, what comes to mind? Was it stained glass windows? Was it this church building? Was it people or a pastor? Or maybe it was a picture of the the sanctuary with all the saints gathered together. How many of you thought of Adam and Eve in the garden? How many of you thought of the Israelites? How many of you thought of Christ's redemptive work on the cross? Or the unity of Jews and Gentiles? Or of God's people in heaven worshipping him? Remember what it is you thought of. We're going to come back to that at the end of this. What we want to do today is we want to look at God's people and the church through the lens of biblical theology. We're going to look at the biblical story from creation to the fall, through the redemption story, all the way to the restoration of all things. We're going to see how the Bible portrays a unified message of God's people and the church with Christ at the center of it. So as we dive into our study today, let's go to the Lord in prayer.
3: Hmm.
2: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for this time that we can open up your word and see what it is you have to share with us. God, we pray that you would be glorified as we see the work that you have done to redeem your people. God, may your church, your people be edified through this study. And God, we give you all praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're going to organize our study by looking at the big themes of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we're going to see how the theme of God's people unfolds in the story of the Bible. So we're going to look at Adam and Eve in creation. We'll see how the fall changes things and the impact of sin. And we'll look at Israel and the church in the story of redemption, and then God's people gathered in restoration. We'll spend most of our time in the area of uh, redemption. We'll look at Israel and the church, focusing on four ways in which the, biblical, the Bible defines God's people as a chosen people, a kingdom of priests, a people where God dwells, and a gathered assembly. All right, so let's dive in. Starting with creation. Genesis 1:1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, God creates domains in the first three days. We see light and darkness, water and sky, land and vegetation. Then, on the fourth, fifth, and sixth days of creation, God fills those domains. Sun, moon, and stars, fish in the sea, birds of the air, and then... On the sixth day of creation, he makes the animals, and then he creates something amazing. Reading from Genesis 1, to 28, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We see in the beginning, God creates a people for himself, a man and a woman created in his own image. We see that these people are given authority under God to have dominion over all that God had created on earth. Man and woman, they were created as relational beings to love each other and to worship God together through their obedience. These people were free to commune and fellowship and talk with God, the God of all creation. Genesis 3.8 also tells us that God's presence was among them. Here are also what Genesis 2 says, describing the responsibility given to this image bearer. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The man God created to work and keep the garden. When you look at the Hebrew words for work, abdah, and keep, shamar, the man was to be a, a gardener and a guardian, maintaining the sanctity of the garden. God saw all that he created and it was very good. What a beautiful picture to be a people in perfect fellowship with God. What a wonderful place to be. So, from creation, what do we learn about God's people? And we're going to start again. There we go. So what is it we learn about God's people? God made them. They never picked God. They were made by God, chosen to be his people and to serve him. God dwelt with his people. Adam and Eve could be in the very presence of God. They were created to be co-rulers under the supreme authority of God. Man was to be a guardian. They were relational beings and together they worshiped God. So, now let's enter the next big theme, the fall. It's very apparent as we look out in the world that it didn't stay this way. Something is not right. Something is broken. What happened? Well, the Bible tells us that sin entered the world. When God's people sought to become like God, they in turn desired to take God off his throne and put themselves in his place. And thus sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Not only a physical death, but a spiritual one as well. A separation that had to take place between man and God. Because no longer could sinful man be in the presence of a perfect, holy God. We have fallen away from God. But before Adam and Eve left, a promise was made that pointed to a future descendant who would redeem that which was broken. Speaking to the deceiver in Genesis 3, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be a struggle between the serpent and God's people, between a people who will worship God and an enemy who will want to destroy them. But one will come from the woman down the line of Seth who would crush the snake. Unfortunately, things are going to get worse before they get better. The curse of sin ran deep with his people, from being exiled out of the garden, to murder, to a pervasive wickedness that spread throughout all humanity. These people who God had created, who were to find delight in resting in his presence, had turned and sought out their own desires. The wickedness became so great that in Genesis 6, we see God's plan to bring out a flood to destroy all of man. So is that it? The end of God's people? Praise God, right? He saw fit to be glorified by his plan to redeem a people to himself. Noah found favor in God's eyes, and God rescues this man and his family while destroying the rest of the wicked people in the world. Well, Now that all the wicked people have been destroyed, surely things would get better. That wasn't the case. Again, we see, rather than a people finding pleasure in God, they found pleasure in pleasing and glorifying themselves. And the people of the earth gathered together and said, let's build a tower to the heavens. The people were going to show their strength and self-sufficiency by uniting and erecting this tower to the heavens. But instead, we see God coming down to see this tower and mixing up the languages of the people, resulting in different tribes and nations and tongues. But God wasn't done there. We're going to now follow the redemptive plan by looking at what it meant to be God's people, starting with Israel, a chosen people. As the world divided into different people groups, God was going to set apart a people of his own. In Genesis 12, God makes a promise to a man named Abram, also known as Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In this covenant God makes with Abraham, we see that God has chosen to build his nation. His people through him. This was to be the nation of Israel. Not only that, but through Abram, God was going to bless all the families of the earth. God's plan for his people is not only national, but it's international. We see God's missionary heart and desire to reach the world. And how would God make this nation great? Well, from Abraham, we have Isaac and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. These tribes were established in Egypt through God's divine providence and when we turn to the book of Exodus, we see that while in Egypt, the nation of Israel grew, and a new king of Egypt came into power, and he enslaved God's people. And it's in Exodus 6 where God not only declares Israel as his possession, but he gives his people a reason to believe and to look to him as their Lord. Speaking of the Israelites to Moses, he says, I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. As a father would lay claim to a child as his own, we see God laying claim to his people, a people whom he would lead, rescue, and care for. It is God who is stepping in and declaring that these people will be his, and not by any means of their own. Listen to what Deuteronomy 7 says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that God set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. In the eyes of the world, they just weren't impressive. Like in Lord of the Rings, in a world of elves and wizards and men and orcs, and yet they were highly valued. A treasured possession and called by the God of all creation to be his people. Now, a quick moment to address one question that comes to mind. Were God's people in the Old Testament only descendants of Abraham? Primarily, yes, but not exclusively. We see that there were others outside the line of Abraham who would come into the fold. Just as Abraham's faith credited him righteousness, we see the same with a prostitute named Jericho from Rahab. She helped hide Israelite spies and assisted their escape. Why did she do this? Because she believed God saying, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Her faith is what saved her. We also see this with Ruth. She was a Gentile who followed after God because of her mother-in-law Naomi. You may remember her famously saying, your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Isn't Isn't it interesting that the Old Testament, in there we have a whole book dedicated to Ruth, a Gentile woman being redeemed by her kinsman redeemer, Boaz. A Gentile being redeemed. Sounds like typology in the making. (laughs) So we see Israel as a primarily descendants of Abraham, but God is also reaching Gentiles as well. So now let's talk about God's people as a kingdom of priests. After God set his people free from their bondage in Egypt, they make camp in the Sinai wilderness. And this is where God makes a covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people. Of Israel, What we see in this Mosaic Covenant is that there's a condition. If they obey God, they would be God's priests in a holy nation to the rest of the world. And it's only a few verses after this covenant is made, we see all the elders of the people are gathered and agree to the terms. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. God is setting apart a people from the, his people, from the rest of the world. And not only that, but he is also commissioning them to be a kingdom of priests. They are to be mediators of the Lord's presence and blessing to the world around them. How would a nation mediate the presence and blessing of the Lord to the world around them? How would they remain holy? Well, in Exodus, God gives his people laws to live by. In Leviticus... We see laws to atone for their sins. And in Deuteronomy, we see exhortation to remain obedient to God and his laws, trusting in his faithfulness so that it may go well with the people. Listen to Deuteronomy 5.33. You shall walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Obedience to God's law is what makes them a holy nation and sets them apart from the surrounding nations. In a world that saw murder and child sacrifice as an acceptable means to please a deity, God's people demonstrated the value of human life. Thou shalt not murder. In a world where people would covet and steal for their own gain, God's people demonstrated self control and love for one's neighbor. Thou shalt not steal. In a world where every day was worked to not lose out on profits or gain, God's people demonstrated a reliance upon the Lord and found rest one day a week. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And the list goes on. As the people lived in obedience to God's word, not only would they thrive, but they would demonstrate to the world what righteousness and holiness look like. One interesting note before we move on. The words used in the Garden of Eden to describe Adam's role, to abdah and shamar, to keep and to work the garden. These are the same words used to describe the priest's work, to serve God by ministering at the tabernacle and to guard the temple from intruders. Even in the garden, God's people had a priestly role. And you could even see the garden as a type of temple. So with that, let's now look at God's people, Israel, as a a people where God dwells. Exodus 25, 8 through 9 says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So first of all, this is extraordinary, right? The all-powerful God of creation desired to dwell with his people. That's amazing in itself. And he shows his people how he will dwell with them by constructing this tabernacle. The God who has the earth as his footstool would dwell in a tent to be with his people. What a demonstration of God's humility and desire For his people to be with him. This tabernacle included a courtyard, a holy place, and the most holy place, or Holy of Holies, where once a year Yahweh would allow the high priest, after making atonement for him and the people, to enter and be with God. That must have been an extraordinary experience. The book of Exodus concludes with the construction of the tabernacle and these words. For the cloud of the Lord was on their tabernacle by day, and fire in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. God was their king, directing them with a cloud by day and a fire by night, and he communicated through the priests and the prophets to lead the people. It was evident that this covenant people were distinct from the nations around them. So now let's look at Israel as a gathered assembly. What also made this people of God unique from other nations is that the nation of Israel as a people would gather together to hear the reading of the law, to confess sins, and worship the Lord. Look at Deuteronomy 4.10. The Lord said to me, "'Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words.'" So that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. Do you see that phrase, gather the people to me? This is the Hebrew word kahal, which is used to describe the assembly of Israel. This Hebrew word kahal, when translated to Greek, is the word ecclesia, which means church. It is the gathering of God's people. To worship and glorify the living God. As the people gathered in Deuteronomy, Moses exhorts the people to love the Lord their God, obey his commands, and walk in his ways. He also warns them of the consequence if they do not. We see blessings if they obey, and curses if they disobey. Towards the end of Moses' life, he sees where the people are headed and it's not good. Deuteronomy 31.29 says, For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. So, thus far, we've seen four ways in which Israel were God's people. They were a chosen people. They were a kingdom of priests. They were a people where God dwells. And they were a gathered assembly. Next, we're going to talk about something new that's coming. Unfortunately, Moses was right. And God's people did not stay true to their word. While Israel was to be God's people, separating themselves And being a light to the rest of the world, they eventually fell into the ways of the world and the sins of the nations around them. Even though Israel had Yahweh as their king, they eventually wanted to be like the other nations and have a human king to rule over them. So God gave them Saul, and then David, and then came Solomon. And one thing about Solomon was that he built a magnificent temple for God to dwell among his people in, in the land where they settled. But ultimately, the nation of Israel was divided under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The the two nations now, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, had a series of bad kings and good kings. But eventually, they became exiles in another land for about 70 years. With this downward spiral of the Israelites into their captivity, how could they be a blessing to the nations? As we see in Hosea, the people who were to be a holy bride became unfaithful and prostituted themselves to other gods. Yet God's faithfulness would never waver. He would restore his bride. We see in Jeremiah that God is going to establish a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Look and see how God is the one working all things He brought them out of Egypt. He made the covenant with Israel. He will make a new covenant. He will put the law within His people. He will write it on their hearts. He will be their God and He will forgive their iniquity and He will remember their sin no more. It is God who is doing this and working all things together. We can see this covenant beginning with the Jews and extending to the Gentiles. This idea of God doing something to reach the Gentiles is also affirmed in other passages. We hear what, it, hear what it says in Isaiah 56.8. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. In this verse, Isaiah is prophesying that salvation would reach all peoples. I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. A promise that extends beyond the Jews. Now how would this be done? Despite Despite Israel's turning away, God has been preserving a a remnant, a people who would continue to follow God and through whom one would come to crush the serpent. Quoting from the prophet Micah, the disciple Matthew writes, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Who would this ruler be? Who would this shepherd be? Approximately 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament have gone by with no word from God. And then it's in this little town of Bethlehem we get these words in Luke 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The long awaited king has arrived. It's Jesus, and it is for him who the people would later lay down their cloaks and palm branches, declaring, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, during this time of Jesus, the Jewish people are under Roman occupation. The idea of a ruler and a savior was one who was going to free them from the oppression they were under. It is their idea that he was going to set up his kingdom with them as his people. They are right about a coming kingdom, but Christ did not come to establish his kingdom on earth. This time, Christ came to build the kingdom of God, or sometimes referred to as the kingdom of heaven, which we'll see later. He came to fulfill the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus Christ is the climax of this beautiful redemption story of God's people. The purpose for Christ's coming was to set his people free from the bondage of sin through his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. In doing so, he accomplished the plan of redemption that was set in motion from the beginning. What's apparent is that Christ was bringing in something new, and God's people would never look the same. They would become the church. Now, Jesus only referred to the church a couple times in his ministry. Once in Matthew 16, when he spoke to Peter about being the rock on which he would build his church, and one other time in Matthew 18, when Jesus gives practical wisdom on how to address sinful offense by someone within the church. These are two explicit areas where we see Jesus talking about the church. However, we see other passages where Jesus is talking about the reality of what will happen and be realized in the church. Before we go on, a quick note back on typology looking back at that story of Ruth, it is true that we see Boaz as a type of Christ. This typology is evident. When we see Boaz was from Bethlehem, Jesus was from Bethlehem, Boaz was a kinsman redeemer, and we see Jesus as a redeemer of sinners. Boaz brought a Gentile in the family, and Jesus made the way for, for Gentiles to enter into the family of God. And if you dive in, you'll see even more. So, let's look at how the four ways in which Israel operated as God's people have changed with the church through this new covenant found in Christ. So first, let's see the impact it made to God's chosen people. Christ changed everything, and we see the gates of salvation open wide for all, Jews and Gentiles alike. During Jesus' ministry, he describes the kingdom of God reaching people from all over. We see this in a conversation Jesus has with the centurion who came asking Jesus to heal his servant. This Gentile centurion demonstrated incredible faith. Christ was willing to go to that man's home and heal his servant. But the centurion believed that Jesus just needed to say the word and he would be healed. Listen to Matthew 8, 10 through 12. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice what Christ says about the kingdom of heaven and the sons of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven will be filled with people from all over, reaching Jews and Gentiles alike. But some of ethnic Israel, descendants of Abraham by natural birth, would not be part of God's kingdom. God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation and that all nations would be blessed. What better blessing than Jesus Christ and the joy of salvation offered to all people? And what about this great nation? This has been fulfilled not in the Israelites because of heritage, but from all who put their faith in Christ and are grafted into this family. Paul affirms this when he writes in Romans, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Brothers and sisters, this is you and I. Both the Jews and Gentiles who have put our trust in Jesus Christ. This is the church. We are recipients of what God promised to Abraham. God's people are are no longer found in in a national tribe, but in an international church. This is the fulfillment of what we saw in Isaiah and in Genesis. All nations are blessed. I will make you a great nation. I will gather others besides those already gathered. Great is God's faithfulness. One note I want to make and not ignore, in addition to God's chosen people expanding to the Gentiles, we see in Scripture that God calls and has chosen his people or predestined us for adoption through Christ. Now, to do this topic justice, it would require a whole other Sunday school. But what is clear is that it is by God's grace and his loving kindness that he would look upon us and call us his sons and daughters. Just as Israel was, we are chosen and desired as a people by God through no means of our own. All right, next, let's look at the church now as a kingdom of priests. Like Israel, we are to set ourselves apart as a holy people. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As a royal priesthood, we are a people to proclaim the excellencies of our Savior. A priesthood proclaiming the good news of the gospel to the world. What is more is that we, believers in Christ Jesus, are considered a holy nation. This is the nation promised to Abraham long ago and fulfilled in the church through Christ. As we share the good news of the gospel and exemplify the fruits of the Holy Spirit, we are mediating God's presence and blessing in the world. As we serve one another, as we love our neighbor, as we pray for others here and abroad, these are just a few ways in which that is being done. As a holy nation, seeking to live holy lives, we too are to live lives in obedience to God's word. Just like the Israelites, but we no longer depend on ritual acts of the sacrificial system to atone for our sins. It is through faith and trust in the final sacrifice of Christ and his blood shed at Calvary. God willing, we'll dive into this more next week. And as we pursue a life of holiness, a life pleasing to our Heavenly Father, we are being sanctified daily by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, that leads us to a church, it's a people where God dwells. And let's see how this has changed. As we think of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can't get away from Christ's redeeming work, how Christ's redeeming work has changed how God dwells among his people now. I want to go back to Christ's time of ministry and when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such a people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We see here that worshiping God by His people will no longer be bound by a specific temple or location. True worshipers of God will worship him in spirit. Speaking of the Holy Spirit dwelling in each believer. Listen to what Paul says also in Ephesians. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul gives us a great image of this new temple. As a picture of all of us who are in Christ, being built together where Christ is our cornerstone and we are all joined together on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, we are the new temple, the new dwelling place of God. Next, let's look at the church as a gathered assembly. The church is a gathered people where Christ is the head and we are the body. Ephesians one twenty through twenty three says, and he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As the church, we are representatives as the body of Christ. As Israel was a nation that would assemble for times of worship, the church today is an international gathering around the world just like what we're doing today. We worship, we sing praises, encourage one another, hear the words of God from the Bible, confess our sins to one another, and offer up acts of love and service. There is unity in the church. Galatians three twenty-eight through 29 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. As we gather, we need to remember that we are one family. Listen to what Jesus says. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mothers. Here are my brothers. Here are my sisters. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Brothers and sisters, although we are not related by blood, or maybe direct descendants of Abraham, we are part of the family by faith. This is a great gift God has given us. So let us treat one another as family, with all our faults and all our failures. Let us love one another and spur one another on in the faith. We have a belonging in the family of Christ. So, now we come to the last big theme, restoration. As a church, we are longing for Christ's return when all is made new. We can see a connection between how Israel and the church operate as God's people, but there's also a connection between God's people in the garden and God's people in the kingdom of heaven when Christ returns and all things are restored. Listen to some of these passages that speak to this coming kingdom and how it compares to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden, God made and chose Adam and Eve to be his people. Mark records Jesus saying that he will come again and gather all his people back to himself. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And when he sends out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, In the garden, God dwelt among his people. And because of the fall, they were sent out of his presence. In the kingdom of God, we are reunited. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. In the garden, God walked among his people in their presence. In the kingdom of God, we will see God face to face once again. No longer will be there, there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. In the garden, God gave authority to his people over creation. In the kingdom of God, the people will be given authority as well. We see this no. in Paul's, Paul's letters to the churches. In the garden, God commanded his people to be fruitful and multiply. In the kingdom of God, the people will be as numerous as the sands. Revelation says, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, as people of God, we have a wonderful future to look forward to, a future worshiping the eternal King. We will be able to bask in the joy of our Savior. Worshiping him as intended in a world restored to what it was meant to be with no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old will pass away and all things will be made new. Brothers and sisters, enter into the joy of the Lord. So friend, if you're here listening and this to this and you feel a strained desire in your heart to be part of this family of God, consider Jesus. Consider his death and resurrection, the price he paid with his blood for you. We are all sinners, but we can take hold of Jesus and be credited with his righteousness. And we too can belong to this family in Christ. If that's you, please come see me or one of the pastors or elders and we would love for you to be part of this family. So, has been tradition with this study, we're going to close with a hymn. So, we're going to close with Great is Thy Faithfulness, and I'll start, and if we can all join along.
1: Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, There is no shadow, Thy compassions they fail not Thou thou hast been All I
2: our biblical theology study of God's people in the church. So, God willing, we will begin to look at the biblical theology of sacrifice next week, and I look forward to seeing you then. So, let's close today in prayer, uh, and I would be happy to take questions. And I'd love also to hear what came to mind for you with the word church at the beginning of this, and has anything changed after today? So, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word as you've shown us this mighty work you have done to draw us unto yourself, Father. Lord, we give you all praise and glory for it is you who are doing this work and it is you who are continuing to do the work in your people, Father. God, we thank you and we give you praise and glory and honor in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So. Any questions? Tom? I do so
4: you you said that, but do you think that in the garden that, in the year, um, that they were like the church in the same way we are, in the sense that, like, God only dwelt among them, but was in them, like, like they were temples of the Holy Spirit, so to speak. Mm. I know this is really speculative. But yeah, yeah. And, and could you... Just
2: for the sake of folks who are going to watch later, could you repeat the question just a bit? Yeah. The yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, so let me just reiterate, make sure I got the question, right? So um, would you say that Adam and Eve in the garden were like the church today? Is that right? Yeah, um, yeah I, I could see in a sense they were, when we look at these, these main ideas, right, you know, of they were chosen people, you know, God has made Adam and Eve, right, to be His people. Uh, they are God's people are people who God dwells among, and so we see that in the garden. Um, they are as God's people to be a royal priesthood. I think that was uh, when you look at those two words to keep um, uh, in the Hebrew the Hebrew language. I feel like that was a beautiful way to just demonstrate, like, sort of the priestly nature, and to also live in obedience to God, right? Because God had given them, in that case, that command not to eat of the fruit, right? And in a similar manner, right, as the church, we're commanded to obey God, and to remain faithful to His word, right? To pursue Him. And by them remaining obedient, I see this worship. So, in a sense, I could see it like the church. Um, And Unfortunately, just like us, they are sinners as we are, and we see the result of that. So, Tom, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, go ahead.
0: For the word I-, I pictured the gather assembly over there in the sanctuary where you asked what came to mind. Mm-hmm. Church. But I really loved how you pointed out about the missionary heart, even in the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, mm-hmm. his desire to bless all the nations. And I wonder how you would think, how does, why does God care so much about them not living amongst the Canaanites? Mm-hmm. Because I think people get confused that God is different back then than he is now. Like mm-hmm. now God cares about the nations. Back then, God really didn't care about the nations based on what, based on the Canaanites and Israel living amongst them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what was God's like, what was his Purpose and why he gave the, those directions about Canaanites with
2: Israel So what was God's purpose in separating God's people from the Canaanite people and not having sort of where we see today with the church where we're, we're all in like amongst the nations but God sort of had them together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think part of that is the idea of God protecting his people and guarding them from the ways of the other nations right I think as a ruler, God is caring for and leading His people in a way to be a holy and righteous nation to set those people apart to make sure that 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 nation and its entity was to be different or separate from the world around them and if they were to if they were to bring in other cultures, it could definitely ruin that that nation and that uh, that desire for them to be a holy nation that 's actually what we see happening right uh, now. We do also, as the church, have the same calling to be set apart, right? To be a holy nation, to be a priesthood. Um, The difference is it's, you know, as opposed to one large nation, we now have Catholics everywhere as the church. But we all are being called to the same thing, to love the Lord your God, to serve him and only him, right, and obey him, um, and to worship him alone. So, Yeah. Oh, that's a great question, Dean. do You have a
0: question. Yeah, um, so, in terms of like emphasis in the uh, Old Testament, New Testament, I mean, uh, it seems like in the Old Testament, it's a big emphasis on like lineage and um, based on like uh, you know the chosen the, the, the mm-hmm. people and whatnot. Um, which is more important now, is the faith or the lineage, or are they both important, or mm-hmm. has that changed over the course of the New Testament? Okay.
2: Yeah, yeah, great question, Dean. I I think what we see is that it was really never about the lineage, right? It was about the faith of the people and them being obedient to God. Even, you know, when when Christ was talking about how even those who are of, you know, that kingdom, they are not going to be part of the kingdom of heaven because they themselves are will not have a heart of faith or putting their trust in God. So that was, they were while part of a lineage and part of a nation right and a people of heritage of heritage descendants of abraham we still see that you know god was also bringing in other people right with like the stories of rahab and and ruth so it wasn't just that the important part was their faith and obedience to god and so that's what we see there does that help team I
3: would just like to add to that I think there's so much in the Old Testament about God's love for um, Mm. the non-Jew I mean the whole story of Jonah being sent to that city to bring them into the fold and uh, just this morning I read uh, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant Mm. and he was the king of the Chaldeans and you know the destroyer of Jerusalem Mm -hmm. and of course Cyrus too Uh, so I think God's heart has always been Mm -hmm. um, for everyone but um, like you said he calls us to be set apart the church to be set apart I
2: I love that example Elizabeth with the um, uh, with Jonah because you really see the difference between you know the heart of God Versus the heart of man. And even those who are called to be his people, right? Didn't even want, you know, Nineveh. They didn't, they didn't even want them to repent. Because they knew God was going to demonstrate love and patience and kindness with that, that nation, right? But yeah, I, that's a great example of God showing a heart for people outside of Israel. I love that.
5: Yeah, and you have a three-line when he First, basically, the covenant with Abraham is to be a blessing for all nations. Mm-hmm. And then with Moses, there's all these rules about how you treat the foreigner. One rule for the native and the foreigner. So it's, and there's, I remember reading something about, like, there might have been some Egyptians crossing the Red Sea with Israel Mm -hmm. because they saw what God did Mm -hmm. and went, we want to be part of that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Ben, that's great. That's a great observation there. Yeah, let's. Um. So, when
3: I thought of the church, the word that came to my mind is that we're the bride mm. of Christ. But I just wondered how men feel about that because, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I see the bride as uh, constantly perfecting herself and making herself more beautiful, more loving, and uh, being cherished mm. by Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's how I picture the church. Um, so yeah. i
2: wondered about that. How do, how do men think about the idea of being yeah. a bride yeah. in the church? Yeah. Well, I don't think I can speak for all men. Um, <laughs> but what, what I love about that personally is, one, it's a reminder that he is the one leading, right, in the relationship and not I. And so when I look to see how... <coughs> as a bride, how the Lord is going to treat me. I think as a, as a man and as a husband, I like to see how then ought I to be treating and leading my wife as well. So I think it's a great example. And I'm, I, I don't, I mean, I like it personally. I love the fact that God has, you know, used sort of a wedding, right, between a groom and a bride to depict how this relationship and this, this covenant between him and his people are formed. Um, so... Yeah.
0: It's the comments that you mentioned. That there's all these rules about in the old Deuteronomy, you kind of mentioned it, but God's concerned for the poor, and the foreigner, and the soldier. Yeah. And it, it's amazing how the people of Israel, because they were slaves, they were to treat the outsiders um, with you know, with charity and love. And you see that with Boaz and Ruth. Mm-hmm. Boaz is following the Mosaic Law and not leaving everything he had to the born to come outside and, eat. Yeah. and it's amazing how that the people of God are always concerned with those who are the least of these mm-hmm. and I, I just see it throughout the church that uh you know Rome, and, and back in Rome don't throw babies out in because no one wanted them and the church would come in and take them and take the babies and praise yeah. them. And I think that was really sort of the church mm. people Proclaiming the excellencies of him involved, because we were slaves yeah. to sin, and now we can mm-hmm. show that same love and honor to those whom the world rejects as yeah. unworthy and not worthy. Amen,
2: yeah. Amen brother. Amen. Anything else? Wasn't. Do you okay. think. Okay.
5: There. Let's see if I can this. Is there a sense that Jesus is the people of God? Does the theme carry through and kind of climax at Jesus? Jeez. Or does it kind of. Mm-hmm. Or does it go a different route, I because... guess? Oh, uh, like... Is Jesus... Yeah. It is... Hmm. Is Jesus a... instance of... I don't know. Yeah, this is why I'm, I'm not quite sure how to phrase this question. Yeah. But we see a lot of themes where it's... So the theme of David would be a clear one where... And then Jesus is David. Hmm. Um And then we have other themes like covenant where Jesus isn't the covenant, but he's the blood of the new covenant. Hmm. So how
2: does Jesus relate to the people of God in that way? Yeah, so I think in, in some respects I think we see Jesus as fulfillment of, but in other respects too, I think we see Jesus as like um, not the church, but there is a definite like relation with the church where he, uh, I think it was with Saul of Tarsus, right, where he's like, why do you persecute me, right? right. He, has, he has such a connection with his church, right, as his people. It's like what you do to them is like doing it to me, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, I think that's what we see. I, I don't know if I would say, like, the church is Jesus, per se, but, like, there is this connection that Jesus has with his people and the church.
5: he falls the thread of remnant, yeah. You have a clear case where that one you do get mm. Jesus is the remnant, and I was wondering. Yeah. Mm.
2: Yeah. No, and I know we were when we were talking earlier. Like that would yes. be a that would be a, a great biblical theology study up to see what is what do we see as the outcome of the remnant right. through that. So yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question, Ben. Great question. Yeah, Laura.
3: Um,
6: it also, just thinking about Ben's question, um, makes me think that there are many ways in which Jesus recapitulated Israel's journey.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: He went to Egypt. Yes. He came out of Egypt. He, um, there are places, as you can see in the book of Matthew, where he uh, there's a feeding, there's a great feast, mm-hmm. and then he crosses water. And that happens twice in Matthew. Um, so there many ways in which he fulfilled what the nation of Israel was supposed to do, mm-hmm. right? So he fulfilled the law. He ful- he did what Israel could not do. Right. And then I guess the question is how does that go forward into the church? Like I can clearly see him as representing Israel.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
6: but then how does he which doesn't I'm not answering that question
1: <laughs> um yeah it's interesting
6: then what then what goes forward yeah. um in a way he becomes a new Abraham right? Father and the people. But it's continuous too. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, that's a great observation. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't
4: it, I think also speaks to how it's theologically we become united with Christ and we become mm-hmm. one with Him, and then what we are, He took on, and mm-hmm. so that we might mm-hmm. become part of Him. And so He is the church in the in that sense. Yes. He's perfecting it, and then when God sees us, He sees Him, mm-hmm. and eventually we will become like that. Participate in the divine relationships Amen. of the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Having them.
1: Yeah.
4: I, I was going to add also about the bride imagery that, that I... You know, scripture is saturated with both male and female images of the ideal followers of Jesus. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's not just masculine. It's not just feminine. You get all of these different images. And God also will use those images in, in many ways. I mean, Jesus says, I'm like a mother, and he wants to gather her mm. kids together. You see God, and I think that gets back to the early chapter of Genesis where men and women mm. are both made in the image of God, and they both yes. reflect his glory, his likeness, but so, like, individually, individually.
1: Yeah. In and
4: yeah.
0: I think I was going to add, too, for the marriage, uh, the bride thing was. Um, I don't think it's instructive on so much, so much instructive on how uh, the husband should relate to his wife as it is an illustration of how God relates to us in a way that a healthy marriage has a husband who you know, loves his wife. And, you know, I mean, like most of the guys I talk to about their relationship, like they just want to hang out with it, you know? <laughs> That's so cool. Um, and it's it's not it's not a chore. It's what what they want to do, you know. And in the same way,
5: you know, God with the church, He must hang out. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Amen. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I yeah. really mm-hmm. like how you emphasize God is still doing all of this.
2: Amen. Right, it is His work all the way through. Glory be him alone. Anything else? Well, thank you everybody. We appreciate
3: it.